we continue our series this morning in the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah. Let's pray together one more time. Our great God, we pray that uh, Christ would be our ultimate aim and our single ambition in life. We thank you for the gospel, how the grace of God has reached down even for your enemies and sinners like us. And now you have given us your word to instruct us, to convict us, to comfort us. All for the purpose and goal that your glory might be manifested in our lives. That we might be slaves to Christ. Filled with the hope of the gospel. Filled with confidence to endure to the end. And so, Lord, we pray, come now and descend upon this people in power. Descend upon us in clarity and truth. That your word would be afresh. That your love might spread abroad in our hearts and our lives conform to our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. What we have before us uh, today, a most sobering court case. I don't say that for effect or for introduction purposes. I say that because that's how Isaiah begins his book in God's divine courtroom. God is the prosecutor today. You are the accused. The heavens and the earth are God's witnesses. And the charges being brought to God is your sin. This is not a popular topic, I realize that, but we really uh, do need to feel and to hear the law of God bear down upon us. One of the dangerous things about the Christian life is lacking a sense of sin. Personal depravity before our God. If you can make it to the end, which I think you will, you will be rewarded. All right, boys and girls, if you can make it to the end, you'll be rewarded with grace. Pastor and author Ray Ortland Jr. put it like this, quote, Isaiah begins his book with life-giving conviction of sin. He says we need a sense of sin. We shouldn't fear it or resent it. It's not destructive. It is life-giving. If we have the courage to let Christ save us. He continues, the unflattering portrait of Isaiah 1 is God's way of disturbing us until we start asking the courageous Godward questions that can breathe life back into us. Amen? That is what Isaiah is all about in chapter 1, and I think we'll take three sermons to cover chapter 1 so that we understand our need to feel and to hear the law of God expose us and make us ready for the gospel of grace. So today we have before us three movements, you could say. The summons in this divine courtroom, 
Next, we'll see the charges, and then we'll see the grace. The summons, the charges, and the grace. We'll spend the most of our time on the charges. First, the summons, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, Isaiah begins, and give ear, O earth. Why? For the Lord has spoken. So Isaiah begins his book, and he says to you, and he says to me, and he says to everybody who has ever lived, God has not been silent. He has spoken. And one of the ways God has spoken, this Lord of hosts, is through general revelation. That is creation. Psalm 19. Um, The heavens declare the glory of God. So the heavens are declaring, proclaiming the glory of God. Verse 2 of Psalm 19 Day to day pours forth speech. So as the days turn, morning to evening, back to morning, back to evening, God is speaking through creation that he's powerful, he's eternal, he's unlike creation, he's ase, he's from himself. And that's what God is saying through creation. So God here in this divine courtroom in verse 2 summons creation, the heavens and the earth, as witnesses against his people. This was common in the ancient uh, day of Isaiah. They wouldn't summon creation. They would get other kings or other people to uh, be brought between a court case and another king who has offended them. And these other kings or other gods would, would uh, be witnesses of this court case between these two kings on which king um, was the offending party. Well, God doesn't do that because there are no other gods beside God. So what does the creator do? He summons the creation. And the creation is always on the side of the creator. With its universal scrutiny... In boundless inspection, creation supplies all the proof necessary to condemn God's people. There are no objections in this court case. Creation sees everything, and you and I are undone before creation's gaze. So that's the summons. Verse 2. Next, the charges. Children, he says, verse 2, have I reared, this is the Lord speaking, and brought up. They have rebelled against me, Isaiah says. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but, but Israel does not know, and my people do not understand. So this arraignment has two charges. We'll take these one by one. First, there is rebellion against the Lord. There is rebellion against the Lord. They, he says, they have rebelled against me. And the Hebrew in, for the word they is emphatic. They, God is saying, they of all people, 
my very own children. He says, those I reared, those I brought up, the the very heirs of redemption, the recipients of my care, those I redeemed, those I chose to be my very own. Think of Deuteronomy 7. God chooses Israel, not because they were more numerous, right? Or because they were most distinguished out of all the peoples of the earth. No, the basis of Israel's election was the love of God. That's why he set his love upon them. Not not for anything in them, but because of the love of God in himself. And he says here in verse 2, It is they who have resisted me. Uh, Friends, this isn't a word against the nations. This is a word against the church. And God says, not even animals are that bad. Look at it. The ox knows its owner. And the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. When I walk downstairs in the morning and my dog is like trying to get out of the kennel, you know, scraping at the thing. It wants me to give it attention, affection. It's no, it knows I'm there. Annabelle knows I'm her master. But, but Isaiah says Israel is not even like a dog. <laughs> it doesn't know its master. Their rebellion, in other words, it's so extreme, you won't even find that kind of rebellion among animals. That's how debased God's people have become. They resisted and rebelled so long, they no longer knew God. That can happen, you know. To you and to God's people. At one point in your life, perhaps you loved Christ. You loved God and his ways. You had a sense of your sin. There was an affection for God's people. You, you went to bed early on Saturday. You couldn't wait to get here on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, to sing and to pray. And Christ, at one point in your life, was lovely. He was majestic. He was holy. You, you loved spending time with him. You loved spending time with his people. But you've matured now, haven't you? And you don't really like to talk about your sin very much. In fact, it's hard for you even to sense your sin anymore. My friends, you may have gotten older, but you haven't matured. Isaiah says, this is you. This is you. This isn't the nation's. This is you. It's possible to resist Christ so long that you have no affection, no love 
and no sense of your need for him. That's the first charge. They, they rebelled. They resisted God. The second charge is, is abandonment of the Lord. Ah, he says in verse 4, uh, woe, it's a word of condemnation. Woe, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. My friends, look at what God's people have become here. Look at the four terms leveled against them. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. These titles, beloved, are the exact opposite of what God's people were by way of privilege at one point. Are they not? At one point, they were a chosen nation. Deuteronomy 7. Now they're a sinful nation. At one point, they were a holy people. Exodus 19. But now Isaiah just lays into them. Now you are a people laden with iniquity. At one point, you were offspring of the promise. Genesis 15, Genesis 17, you're children of Abraham. The seed of the Messiah is going to come from you. You're offspring of the Messiah. You're offspring of the promise, but now, Israel, you're offspring of evildoers. You're, you're from the line of the serpent. And, and you were redeemed people. I brought you out of Egypt to be my very own people. You were redeemed. But now, look at you. Well, now you're children who deal corruptly. Sin has ruined everything. And Isaiah wants them to know it. And he wants you to know it. He wants you to feel it. He wants, I, he wants Israel to feel their sin. And if that wasn't enough, Isaiah says they have forsaken the Lord. That's the second charge. They've abandoned him. They left him. The Lord was no longer lovely to God's people. Are you seeing the digression here? They first resist. No. Now it's abandoning. Now it's forsaking. They no longer saw God as lovely, no longer great and good. Which, by the way, is why you leave something. It no longer has value to you. Am I going to hold on to Christ? What good is he to me? So they leave and forsake him. Sin, beloved, sin is not, boys and girls, hear me, sin is not just the behavior of doing bad things. 
Sin is much worse than that. Sin is the exchanging. The fountain, the the full cistern of grace and glory and goodness and righteousness and joy and peace. Sin is saying, no, I'm going to exchange that for a broken cistern that you think is going to satisfy and give you refuge. And it will not. And so Israel and the church today seeks out other towers of refuge, other cisterns for satisfaction, instead of staying with the one that can satisfy them. And Isaiah continues, he says, they have despised the Holy One of Israel. Resist, forsake, and now they hate, they despise him. Which, by the way, this phrase here, the Holy One of Israel, is Isaiah's signature. All throughout the book, he refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. That's his favorite phrase. Maybe you have a favorite phrase of the Lord. That's Isaiah's. When Isaiah speaks about the holiness of God, it's absolutely stunning. Let me try to flesh that out for you, all right? Or at least try. And let me bring in three friends. Richard Muller, when we talk about the holiness of God, God's holiness is the absolute goodness of his being. It has to be. There's no badness to his being. God's holiness is the absolute goodness of his being, end quote. Second friend, Edward Lee. Listen to this. God's holiness is that excellency of his nature by which he gives himself unto himself, doing all for himself and in all and by all and above all, aiming at his own pleasure and glory. So the holiness of God is the self-centeredness of God. And he's the only one allowed to be that way. If he's not, he's an idolater. Being the greatest being he is, he has to pursue his own glory. If he doesn't, he's not God. Right? So the holiness of God, according to Edward Lee, is that excellency by which he pursues his own glory maximally. Last friend, Stephen Charnick. I save the best for last, in my opinion. Charnock writes, power is God's hand and arm, omniscience his eye, mercy his bowels, eternity his duration, his holiness, his beauty. Isn't that amazing? The holiness of God is God's all pursuit of his own glory and greatness and goodness, sparkling with such beauty and excellency that you should not want anything else. But Isaiah says, this is what you have exchanged for mud pies in the slum, Lewis says.
pressing the charges even further and more clarity, God uses two images to help us see how clueless we can be. First, the wounded man. Why will you still be struck down? Verse 5. Why will you continue to rebel? You know something about sin that's unreasonable? Why are you doing this? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. And when you sin, you're like, yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't make sense, Lord. Why, why, why will you continue to rebel? Look at the wounded man. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. This man has been so clobbered, there's not a square inch on his body not bloodied. That's what the image of a sinful person is. And the sad thing is, he doesn't even feel it. Did you catch that? He doesn't even go to his wounds and press them out or bind them up or soften them with oil. He doesn't realize the condition he's in. He just keeps returning back to the same punishment, never learning his lesson. And Isaiah is saying, this is you. You don't even realize the misery your sin is causing you and the people you love. So you just keep going back to it. You're so self-absorbed, you'd rather be beaten to a pulp than receive healing. Second imagery or image, the desolate city. Your country, verse 7, lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth and a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. So sin has brought God's people down and they're reduced to nothing. It's like the rock bottom here. Like a shack in the midst of a field, the church is a city on fire, a desolate city. This is the church defensive, the church exposed and cornered. It turns out, beloved, that the church needs a savior too. Right? Which brings us to our last brief point, the grace. Verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should, have be, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I don't know about you, but verses like these make the Bible and the book of Isaiah so absolutely stunning. For seven verses, God indicts us. Our rebellion, our abandonment, our condition, like a bloodied man in a desolate city, 
and creation agrees with all of it. But on the turn of a dime, in one verse, verse 9, everything changes. This is why the gospel is so amazing. And this is why you have to let the law expose you. You have to let the law condemn you. If you don't, the remedy, the gospel, will not be all that glorious. We're told in verse 9 that the Lord of hosts has left a few survivors. We're told in verse 9 that sin hasn't ruined everything. Praise God. I've been waiting for this verse. There's a remnant. There's a remnant. There's a few survivors by grace, Isaiah says. There's an invisible church among the visible that God by grace has kept. He's held us fast. He's preserved us. And he's saying to you today, If you can listen to the words of prosecution and the charges being brought, if you find yourself in verses 2 to 8, if that's you and you agree with them, he's saying to you today, oh, by faith, you can be part of the remnant. You can be a few survivors among all that is destroyed. You don't have to be there. You can be in verse 9. What a gospel. How do you get to be a survivor? How do you belong to the remnant? Well, I think Isaiah has three clues. And I'll close with this. Back to verse 5 and 6. You become part of the few survivors by knowing who the wounded man is. In verse 5, we are told, why will you be struck down? In Isaiah 53, in that beautiful sketch of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah uses the same word there in 53 as he uses here in chapter 1 for struck down. And he says that the Lord Jesus Christ was struck down or that he was smitten by God. Isaiah says here in chapter 1 verse 5 that the whole head is sick. He says in Isaiah 53 that the wounded man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he carried our sicknesses. And in verse 6, he says, The wounded man has bruises and sores and raw wounds. And Isaiah says in 53, that with his wounds we are healed. You get to be part of the remnant or the few survivors by drawing near to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Have you done that? Have you come to Christ, the wounded man, by faith? Said, yes, I'm guilty by prosecution. 
and the law of God condemns me. But Jesus Christ is my only hope. Oh, that blessed Savior for sinners, the true wounded man. Will you come to him by faith? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful that the law of God has sought to do its work, and we ask that the gospel might come to bear upon our souls. The perfect law exposes me. Yes, Lord, we agree. Might Jesus be my only hope in life and in death. And may this church, may this church continue to hope in Jesus Christ from day to day, from life to life.